fired today, and I'm, I'm fully supportive of it, but I did experience a moment of weakness just before the service, and I, I noticed for the first time this fierce pack of girls here, and I thought if I can recruit this fierce gang of girls, maybe they could stop the firing, but then I realized, no, it's what the Lord, the Lord wants, and um, I do want to get, uh, offer a, a little bit of a different kind of message uh, today uh, because it's my last day and because this is a church in, in transition and facing things um, that I hope uh, will be helpful uh, to the congregation as you move forward. But first, I do want to read um, uh, a few passages of, of Scripture, one from uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, and then two from Matthew. But then I'll, I'll refer to a lot of passages today that normally don't do, but just for the purposes of, of, this, of this particular uh, day, I want to do that. <clears throat> but in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Now after John, John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And, we, you know, our default mode of what we're about here would include the phrase, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, uh, but I want to draw attention uh, more particularly today for another phrase that comes up. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is right here. It's right here among us. Repent and believe the gospel. So this close connection between the good news of Jesus Christ and the good news of God with the kingdom of God. And then in uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 4, Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, verse 23, it says of Jesus that he went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues. I want to stop here to just note that, of course, Jesus did a lot of teaching and preaching that was outside the synagogue and was outside the temple. But he also, throughout his ministry, did go to the official place, the gathering place of the people of God, the synagogue, and to the temple, he went to those places that were the official institutions because there God had placed his name there. And so he did that, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And then later in uh, Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter uh, 12, beginning with verse 22, 
remarkable passage. There it says that a demon-possessed man, Matthew 12, 22, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, brought to Jesus. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Now, why would they ask that question? Because the Jews, from the time that they can remember anything, if they were brought up into any halfway decent Jewish family, would have been taught. Among many other things, they were taught about what God had done for them in the past. They would have been taught that you belong to the chosen people of God, and they would have been taught that a Messiah is promised, the Messiah of the Jews, and he's going to come, and he is going to restore the kingdom to Israel so that it was the most natural thing in the world in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had arisen from the dead, and uh, a, another a great display of power, not just over sickness, but this time over death, he, he'd arisen from the dead, but he hadn't yet ascended to the Father. And in Acts chapter 1, they asked him a question. And I, when I think about this question, I think about you know the two big questions at the churches I've been at since I was 17. One of the questions is, how can we have this God of the Old Testament who's full of judgment and fury and wrath and killing, and then we got this Jesus and grace and mercy? But, of course, both of those things are wrong. This just shows people haven't been taught properly. I blame preachers. We're at fault for a lot of the problems of the grace in the Old Testament and the judgment in the New Testament. But the other question I always get is, when are you going to preach on revelations? I get that all the time. And there's nothing wrong with preaching on the book of Revelation. It's in, it's in the Bible. But there can be an undue, you know, an inappropriate fixation on the end times. You know, So they asked that question in Acts 1. They said, uh, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He didn't, Jesus didn't say, well, that's a stupid question. That's a lie. I, we're never, that's never going to happen. No, what he said was, it's not given for you to know the times that the Father has. It was a natural question. It wasn't a bad question, but then he moved on to tell them what they should be thinking about, and that's what we're going to talk about later today. But So this is a very natural question, this display of power. Can this be the son of David, the Messiah? And, and Because what, they, what, they, what their hopes were rested uh, upon as the people of God, listen now, what their hopes were invested in for the future as the people of God was going to take a wielding of power, you see. And so this Jesus has wielded power. And so it makes sense that that display of power would prompt in them the question, could this be the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself can stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? 
And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, you see the logic here. If he can cast out demons because he's the prince of demons, and therefore the demons obey him. That's the logic. And by the way, a lot of things are logical that are not true. You know, some people, uh, religions believe that, you know, what accounts for our experience of human life is that there's a great good force in the universe and there's a great evil force in the universe and they're clashing. There's a lot of logic to that. You can use that as a lens through which to interpret the meaning of life. Just because something is logical doesn't make it true. But there's a logic to this question. And Jesus takes it seriously. Jesus didn't always take questions that were put to him seriously. A lot of times people say something to him, ask him a question, and he just completely blows them off in the sense that what he says next doesn't seem to have anything to do with it. He did that with Nicodemus. But here he takes it very seriously. It's very important to Jesus that they understand what his wielding of power means and doesn't mean. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if, if, he, sometimes Jesus likes to pose questions. He poses a question. If it is by the Spirit of God, by the way, God the Spirit is a person. It's the third person of the Holy Trinity, which means that, that God's power-wielding is a constituent element of his personhood. There's a lot of mystery here. But power is often associated with the Spirit of God. Right? And when we think of the Holy Spirit, because of what the Bible teaches, we think of empowerment for things. And the Pentecostal movement that is fixated on the third person of the Trinity talk about power all the time. Because in the Bible, the Spirit is associated with power. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and it is, it's a historical question, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. One of the things I want us to note here is that in all of these passages that I've read, there's really nothing in it about a kind of a gospel presentation that is meant to lead to repentance and faith. Now, in the first uh, passage that I read, the power is displayed, the power is, is, is announced, and then he says, therefore, repent and believe. So there's not like there's no opposition between these passages and what we think of as the heart of the gospel, that we proclaim Jesus Christ, he died on the cross, if we put our faith and trust in him, then our sins will be forgiven, we'll be adopted into the family of God, and we'll gain eternal life. There's no opposition. But I'm just noting that there are these passages, and there are passages all over the Bible, that the immediate focus is not, it's not, that we can have our sins forgiven, and then we get to go to heaven. The focus of these passages is something different. The focus of it is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The wielding of power by our God. The God who created this universe and said everything he made was good and put Abraham and uh, put uh, uh, Adam and Eve into the uh, Garden of Eden is a God whose claim is upon everything that he's made. 
And this, this world that we live in, which is still His creation, even though it's fallen and broken, and through our sin it has become the valley of the shadow of death that we walk through. So that no matter how confident we may become in ourselves, the fact is that, that, that today something tragic could happen to me or somebody I love or to our whole country or to the world. We're utterly vulnerable when we're, when we're honest and, and, and we, we, we're, we wisely see our situation. Nevertheless, that what God has created, all of it belongs to Him. And what He made all of us for is also not hidden in Scripture. What did He make us for? He made us to live a life in which all dimensions of His creation are functioning the way they ought to to function so that the salvation that is announced in Jesus Christ it is not less than our need for forgiveness of our sins and our need for uh, the inheritance of eternal life beyond this world but it is more than that and that's why Jesus to show that he is the Messiah the son of the only true God deemed it appropriate to heal people, okay, to heal people. Our Lord has many titles. One of those is he's the great physician. He's the great physician, which is different from the person who helps us bear up when we're sick and shows us that it doesn't even matter if we're sick. No, he healed them. He demonstrated he was God not by saying, well, just bear up but by healing them. And one of the promises that we have, and I love this promise. I've, I've, need, I've, I've always needed this promise. We've always needed this promise, all of us, our whole lives. But my first recognition that I needed this promise was the first time I had a terrible lower back spasm at Arkwright Cotton Mill in Spartanburg, South Carolina in 1976. And I remember it. And it was like needles going into my back. And I went into the office and they put some kind of red gooey antiseptic called red oil on it that had nothing to do with helping my back. And they rubbed that on there and they said, get out there and get that cloth off those looms. Here's what I needed and we all need. The promise of a new body. Man, I need a new body. I'm ready for it like 10 years ago. I'm ready for Jesus to come back. Give it to me. And, and part of our promise is there's going to be no more pain or crying. You know? Here's what, first of all, by far the fastest growing and soon to be the largest part of Protestantism is the Pentecostal movement. And I'm going to say what they get wrong, and then I'm going to say what they get right. Here's what they get wrong. They get it wrong when they say, that God wants all of his children to be totally healthy and totally wealthy all the time right now in this world. That's a lie. Okay? In fact, if you follow Jesus, it could make you get poor. It could make you get hurt. You know, they did kill Jesus. Right? We love him now, but, you know, the proof that he was the son of God includes that they crucified him. Okay, 
And, of course, all the Pentecostal preachers, they also get sick and die. All their family gets sick and they die. I'm not celebrating that. I'm just pointing it out. And all the people they preach to who nod when they you know, tell them all that they can get, you know. James Copeland used to have to go. He had, a, he had several houses, and he had one house he went and hid in when he was sick. It didn't look good for him to be sick. After telling everybody else if they would just believe right and strong enough, they wouldn't be sick. That's a lie. Here's what they get right. The God we worship cares about all dimensions of our life, not just our disembodied soul. And we do, are doing God's work when we take care of ourselves physically, when we help others physically and financially. Poverty comes... Because of the fall. And so, and we are right to give God the praise when He blesses us in all dimensions of life. Every good gift comes from Him. And so, the fact that I'm able to stand up here, and I'm sure many of you have noticed that when we do this, when we go through the long singing sets, I sit down. Why do I sit down? Because my back says, if you want to stand up as long as you need to, to run your mouth, when you get up there with the microphone, you better sit down. That's what my back tells me. And so I sit down. I have to. It's a physical, it's a physical thing. But the fact that I'm able to stand up here and preach and teach is because of the blessing of God. That's in His purview. That belongs to to the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the kingdom. All dimensions of life are his purview and his claim. Now we think about God and we emphasize that God is love. And we should, and much that we've sung today has emphasized that in, in wonderful ways. The first thing that we sang today, I love it because it, it just said, we, we were singing a lot of true things. For one thing, when we, we sang, we, we were kind of exploring uh, the dimensions of God's love, the characteristics of God's love. And, and that's, that's important. I'm going to list some in a minute because we all love is one of those big words that we all think we already understand. But all of the great words are words that God wants to define for us in his word. Like we all think we're all experts on love. But in the Bible, it's like we're treated like we don't know what it is. So we're told this is love, not that you love God, but that he loves you. That no greater love has this than that you would lay down your life for your friend. So we're treated in the Bible like real ignoramuses on the things that are really important. Because we are. You see, sin has, has, has distorted our understanding of these great things. And so we were, we, were, we were singing and exploring the dimensions of God's love. We said God's love is deep. And it's wide. And it's sweet. That was a really important Puritan word. They love to talk about the sweetness of the Spirit of God. And I spent time with the Lord today, and it was so sweet. Puritans love to use that word. And we said, we sang that love is, his love is strong. And this was really good. His love is fierce and even furious. I like that too. Because I've said before that love always hates. Because if you love someone, you'll hate anything that's bad for that person. So there's a fury to God's love. And, but I think the two words that, the two thing, characteristics of God's love that we sang today that really fit with what I want to emphasize today from these passages 
is we said it was strong and it's wide. Wide, I think that helps me because when we think about the kingdom of God, think about that Jesus told us to pray, thy kingdom come. And then he, he indicated that he wants his will to start being done now. It's like, Where the Pentecostals go wrong is they imagine that we can have it all now. That's not right. But we are taught that we can have glimpses and tastes of it now. And so therefore, if someone's sick and I try to help them, I don't imagine that I can make them well forever. But I do know, based on Holy Scripture, that when I seek to address that person's physical problem or financial problem, this is God's work. You see, and it bears witness to Jesus Christ. He cares about those things too. Because I want to alleviate suffering the way he did. And so we give him credit. So it's a wide, it's a kingdom that, that affects all dimensions of life. That's what we're looking for. So different than only focusing on me and my soul and my life and my career or whatever. It's this wide thing, a kingdom that involves people interacting with each other in all dimensions of life. And then we also so saying that it's strong. I really want to emphasize that. Our God is not just a God who has these deep aspirations uh, for his love, but he can't really uh, enact them. He's not a God who just has, uh, who's driven and animated by desires, but he can't really bring about what he desires. It's just the opposite. He's a, he's a, he's a royal power-wielding God. He's a king. And he means to accomplish things with his power. And he has not, he's not playing hide-and-seek with us about how he does, not just wants to, but does use his power. Now, here's another thing with the Pentecostals. The Pentecostals, here's what they get right. And it's not like they're the only ones that get it right, but I see God using them to throw this in our faces. Here's what they get right. Our God is alive today, speaking and acting and wielding power. And there have been times in the history of the church and even in my own denomination where sometimes that, that's not forgotten utterly, but it's, but it's at a low ebb. It hasn't been emphasized. And it's almost like, well, God gave us this book, and he's gone now, and he'll come back later and see how you did with the book. And basically what we were supposed to be doing is, is trying to be holy. Okay? And, and against that, the Pentecostals come in and say, our God didn't just give us the book and tell us to get busy trying hard. Our God's alive, speaking and acting now. We pray to a living God who's intimately concerned with and involved in every part of our lives and this world. They're so right about that. A mistake they can sometimes make, and this is not just the Pentecostals, we can all make all these mistakes. We all make all these mistakes. They're just, you know, disproportionately concentrated in different uh, traditions in, in, in the history of the church. And that is we can imagine that the power of God is something that we can have. And that is not true.
true. What do you mean that's not true? Okay, let me talk about what I mean. I've probably said this before, but that's okay. I've only got five or six things I say them over and over. And I'm about to get fired. I can say whatever I want to today. <laughs> the U-Haul is running. Um, here's a kind of empowerment that is very real and very significant. There's power that we can gain as individuals by doing exercise or taking amphetamines or even taking a course on positive thinking. All three of these things can empower us. Let's go with amphetamines. I've mentioned this before, I think. There used to be a kind of speed, a kind of amphetamine back when I was a drug addict that was called West Coast Turnaround. I don't know if I've mentioned that, but it, maybe I have. It's like in some church I mention this, and there's somebody that comes up, and they're in their 60s, and they say, oh, yeah, I used to take that. And that means you can take the, the amphetamine, and then you can drive to the West Coast and turn around and come back. Because you've been empowered by the amphetamine. Now, that in these cases, the empowerment is something that the power transfers to us it's our power to wield however we want it to want to do it, you see. So you could take West Coast turnaround and you could drive your truck to California and come back, or you could beat your wife, or you could just work real hard on a book you're doing, you see. And people do that. There are people that take drugs to be empowered, to get energy to do certain things. Because it becomes their power to wield. God's power is never like that. You never can afford power. Now, you can mature in the faith. You can mature in the faith. People who mature in the faith, first of all, just being a Christian for a long time doesn't mean you mature in the faith. That's why you can have old fools, you see. Just being alive and having experience, even as a Christian, doesn't make you become wise. Some people don't learn lessons, you see. But if you have long experience with something, it provides an opportunity to become wise, right? So the, if you've been a Christian a long time, and if we have learned God's ways, then we become mature Christians. So we don't make as many mistakes on interpreting the meaning of the things that happen in our lives. And we become better at offering advice to others, encouraging others. But here's what never happens. What never happens is that we get to store up the Holy Spirit and then pull it out like a holster or whatever and, and that never happens because that's God we say oh are you saying we never have the Holy Spirit yeah but to be to have the Holy Spirit is to be had by the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity so yes the Holy Spirit God the Holy Spirit empowers us but not in such a way that the power transfers to us for us to use how we will God's Holy Spirit empowers us listen now for the things God wants done. Part of the problem we have with God is we get fixated on things we want done, and they might even be things God is fine with and that he will do. But our thinking is wrong on it. We're imagining that God is there. I can use his power for the things I want. And the right way to think about it is God empowers what he wants. And so that means it behooves us I want everybody to start saying these words I've taught you. Behoove, eschew, abhor. It's very important to me that you do this because you're not going to remember this other stuff I said. It behooves us then to learn what God wants. 
And maybe another way to put it that some of you might have encountered way back when uh, Henry uh, Blackaby had his experience in God discipleship thing out. We need to learn what God is actually doing in this world because those are the things he'll empower. Now, what is he doing? What I want to emphasize, because this is a church in transition and because this is a church, just because it's a church and because it's a church in transition, is that we here's something we know God is always doing and is a constituent element of what it means to be a child of God, to be following Jesus, to be uh, laying hold of the benefits purchased for us on the cross. Here's what God is doing. Jesus said what he was doing. At Caesarea Philippi to Peter, after that crazy uh, encounter with Peter where Peter uh, said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times, and Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified. And, and, he, and Jesus said to Peter right after he'd said, you know, you couldn't have even said you're the Christ, the son of the living God, if my father hadn't shown you. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. And then the next breath, Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan, because Peter says, no, I will never let it happen. God forbid that you would ever be arrested and crucified. And then Jesus said something that will always be true as long as we're alive. It's been true the whole time we're alive. Jesus said what he's interested in doing. And that means that God's power is available for the doing of it. He said this, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. Oh, well, that means the universal church. Because, you know, you come to the Lord, and as soon as you repent and believe, you become a child of God, and now you're part of the universal church. Yeah, that's true. But then when we look at Scripture, what do we find? How does he build his church? He builds his church by church planting. These churches existed. People came together, like at North Valley right now. They came together. They worshiped so that letters could be sent to them. To a very significant extent, the depth and the power and the blessing and the enjoyment of all of our relationship with Jesus is going to be proportional to how much involved we are, how bought in, how sold out we are for what he cares about, the church. Now, why is that such a problem in our day? It's a problem in our day, first of all, because we're just sinners. <laughs> so Everything's a problem because we're all eat up with sin. But we probably suffer disproportionately from this problem of taking the church seriously as something that God is invested in because we've been shaped to think in terms of being a consumer. And consuming is not all bad. I'll never forget when Senator Ernest Hollings said years ago, he was the head of the budget committee, he said, there's entirely too much consuming going on here. Well, that, you know, he didn't have his R's. He was in chalk. And... Uh, you know, if everybody stops consuming, then we're all going to be going to be dirt poor. And a lot of people mouth off about consumerism, but, you know, they don't really weigh how poor they would, are willing to be. They don't think of it that way. They're just, oh, we're such consumers. Okay. But there is a problem with consuming when it comes to God. So that we think of, we, we, our default way of thinking about how we're going to spend our time is this. 
whether it's reading a book, going to Disney World, taking a vacation, staying in a job, staying in a marriage, staying at a church. Everything is on trial. Steakhouses, it's on trial. I'm the consumer. And so if I like it, if I get something out of it, if I have a good experience, I might come back. If I don't, I won't come back. And we do the same thing with the relationships we're in and with the church. And the devil loves that because God invented marriage. It, what, it's not, it doesn't exist for your or my convenience, <laughs> nor does the church, nor does the church. But that's the default way of thinking. And so when we think that way and behave that way, we have lots of other people who are Christians who will agree they've done the same thing. They won't push back because this is the way we all think. We just think this is the way we all think. Well, if I didn't get anything out of it, so we go to church. I'm not talking about you all. All of us here understand and we live the right way. But, but you go to church and everybody's on trial. Well, did I like it or not? Did I get something out of it? And so we're not being informed by what the Bible teaches is actually going on. What's actually going on with Christians? We see it in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Jesus says, in response to their question about revelations, he says to them, it's not given for you to know the details of the end times. Then he tells them what they should be thinking about. See, it, this is interesting. Their question was a spiritual question, an honest question. It wasn't wrong. They don't need to be reprimanded. But then he tells them, God will handle that, okay? You, that's not revealed. What is revealed about the end times, that's good for you to know. What hasn't been revealed, no matter how sincere you are, you're not going to know. What you do need to be thinking about, Jesus tells them. He said, you're going to wait here and Power will come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And that's exactly what happened. And the rest of the book of Acts is chronicling the beginnings of Jesus's, I love Jesus, I hate the church, of Jesus's fulfillment of his promise to do what he came to do, which is build the church. And how does it work? Here's how it works. Those from the church, well, the, 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 the apostles, they go out empowered by the Spirit and they preach Jesus Christ, repent and believe. Follow me now. This is what God does. This is what God does. We're not really talking about what we do right now. We can look at it from both perspectives. Right now we're thinking of it in a divine perspective, since I'm divine. He, he uses their witness to Jesus Christ, to convert some of those who hear. Not all of them. But some are converted. They repent and they believe. They become Christians. And then what happens to them is, well, they're just told, well, just go out there and just whatever works for you, get some good CDs, read the Bible through each year. No. He gathers them into churches. And they come together, the Bible says, and they... They come together in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the word of God. And he gathers them together as churches. That's what he does. And then he ends up relating the churches to other churches, not just us out here by ourselves. No, he relates them to other churches. They recognize them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And they help each other. When one church has a, a difficulty and they're in, in, in poverty and poor, then this other church sends help to that church to help them. That's what God is doing. 
Now, but why, first of all, that's what God is doing, regardless if you understand it or agree with it. And so not liking it and wanting to put the church on a lower level and like an option for spiritual growth is spitting in the face of the Bible and of Jesus. That's just the way it is. But are we not, are we taught anything about why is the church so important to us? Why? We are told a lot about why. The church is the place where those gathered together offer worship to God that's not by yourself. Can you worship God by yourself? You can and you should. But our God deserves to be worshiped as we come together from many voices, many passages like that, more and more voices giving praise to him. And see, we need that as individuals. It's not like this individual focus is evil. It's just that the individual focus that imagines all these, all these communal things as somehow alien or just a product to be or service to be accessed is a lie. We were made for each other to be brothers and sisters in Christ and to worship together. I need that for myself to be worshiping with other people. So we come together, we worship God. Here's another thing that's happening. We come into the church and we're taught the deep things of God by gathering around the Word of God together. And that, and see, the difference is instead of me being by myself learning the Word of God, which is good, which we should do, but even there we should go there as a member of the church. But then when we come and learn together, then God uses our learning of the Word of God together to knit us together and bind us together as, as brothers and sisters. That can't happen if we're apart from each other. And he brings us to the church to equip us to go out and be witnesses. And then when that goes badly, we have support of our brothers and sisters. When it goes well, then we have the celebration and encouragement of our brothers and sisters. And then perhaps in Ephesians, more than any other book in the Bible, we learn why God is so interested in the church. He builds us up together in love. We were made to be brothers and sisters in Christ. There's, no, there's a great limit to what you can know about Jesus if you're not being built together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? So that our love for each other will reflect the love of God that made us brothers and sisters in Christ. How in the world? We've sung that today about the mercy of God and in the Bible, I mean, in the church, God brings us together, and we get to have our little part of showing mercy to others as God has shown mercy to us in Christ. And well, why the church? Why, why can't we just be out there as free agents and show mercy? Because the Bible really envisions a situation where we're in covenant relationship to, to each other. We've made promises to each other the way he's made promises to us in the church. And what that means is that when we think we're free to just leave, that's not compatible with the kind of love we need and expect and get from God where he doesn't leave us, right? He doesn't throw us away when we forget or we fall or we transgress. He doesn't throw us away, and we count on that, and we can count on it. That is the kind of love he gives to us. It's kessed love. It's keeping love. I'll never, we sang today about orphans. He doesn't, Jesus said, I won't leave you orphans. He 
he doesn't lead us. So how can we then, oh, we love that about God, but then we give ourselves permission to just throw people away as soon as it's not good. And that's what, exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do. So when there's a problem at church, we drive away. And especially these kind of problems. Somebody at church uh, does sins against me. And so that's it. We're out. Or it's the other way around. I sin against someone else. And I don't want to admit it. Slash I'm ashamed of it. Either way, and I drive away. And what we do then is we squander the opportunity God wants us to have to make good on the prayer he called us to pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, way back long ago when I used to sin, I mean, the memory's fading, but I sinned against someone. I did wrong. And I was already an ordained minister. Of course, now we're getting, to, getting used to the fact that, yeah, that's mainly what us ordained ministers do. It's a terrible thing. Now, I didn't want to see that person again. I didn't want to see that person again. And I thought about taking some steps so I wouldn't have to see that person again. But God got involved, and somehow... I didn't bolt from that situation. I went to the person and I said, I'm sorry. And I'm, I'm not proud of myself. I give God all the credit that I did a real apology. You, you, I've taught you all about the, the, the non-apology apologies. The non-apology apologies is you apologize for how they felt. I am so sorry if you were offended. Boy, you are so easily offended. Because my motives were pure as the wind-driven snow. That's not an apology. Don't even talk that way. When you apologize, what you're saying is, what I did was wrong and offensive, period. And if you didn't think it was, then you didn't, you didn't see it the right way. That's an apology. Why is that so hard for us? I tell you, it calls into question whether many of us are really converted. Because to come to Jesus Christ, you have to say that about yourself. To come to Jesus Christ, you have to say, my sins caused the cross of Jesus Christ. Boy, that is so different from saying I'm not perfect or I'm so sorry you were offended, Lord, by the way I was living. You can't even become a Christian without giving the deepest, most heartfelt apology ever. It's repentance. And yet then all of a sudden, it seems like nobody in the church can do it at all drive away. Whereas what God wants to do is wield the power of the Holy Spirit among us and bind us together in love according to the truth. And what's the truth? We're messed up people. We sin against each other with our lips and with our neglect and all kinds of ways. And the church, as St. Augustine said, is supposed it is used by God as a hospital for sin-sick souls. And the only way to see that this kind of gospel reconciliation so that we become a real family can, can play itself out and we can say, yes, that's something God does, is if we cling to each other as we cling together to the Lord. That's what God wants to happen. And, and here's the thing. God will give us power. 
he'll empower us because that's what he wants said. God grants us that will happen. Now, I'm so uh, grateful that I could be part of your life here. I'm so grateful that Dan Moran is coming. These times of transition are special times for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons is churches are, are, are uniquely vulnerable between pastors, but it's also a unique opportunity between pastors. And especially if you bring someone in who's invested his life in getting credentialed and really specializing in these transitional times, as Dan Moran has. And that means he's trained himself to diagnose this church. What's its strengths? What's its weaknesses? With the end of trying to move the church to a place where it is kind of in, a, in an optimum receptive mode to the new pastor and for identifying a good match in a new pastor. That's, that's what we'll predict whether North Valley can, can flourish or not in, in, in many ways, is getting that right match. And it, it's also helpful that See, in some ways, he's going to be like a pastor here. But in other ways, he's kind of like a consultant and kind of like a prophet. He's got the U-Haul running. In other words, he knows he's not stuck with you. So like me today, he's liable to say things he wouldn't say if he was the pastor. Right? And here's what you've got. You're not stuck with him. So he can come in here with his thunderbolts of wisdom, and you can say, I disagree, and you'll be gone to now, this is not a situation that is good for the long haul, but it can work very well in a time of transition because it can facilitate a deep reflection, you see. And one of the things that I pray is that the church will, I don't know this church very well at all, but it will become very, very leadable. What the problem, if you look at any church that's flourishing and growing, here's what will always be true about it. They will have a leader there who's really the leader and is really trusted. And that's why he can lead, because the people trust him. It takes time for that to happen. The bad situation and the one that the transitional pastor can hate, help make it less than it will happen in North Valley is a church where it has a revolving door of pastors. And a lot of reasons why that happens. But one reason that happens is sometimes churches fall into a situation where there'll be one or two or three or four powerful lay people who stake out turf and the church becomes unleadable. Now, having influential lay people is a very, very good thing. I've seen churches that had really powerful influential lay people who influence other people in the church that were great and wonderful. And then I've seen others where it just meant that they could, that church could never be led by anybody. And so no matter what they say about leadership when they call a pastor, what they mean is do these discreet duties and you're to blame if we don't flourish, but then they prevent that person from leading the church. And so you get a revolving door. So pastors come, they realize I can't lead this church, so they leave. God called me somewhere else. And that just keeps going on and on. What needs to happen is this. Is that the church is moved to a situation that's leadable, and then when the pastor comes, the pastor's going to have a big honeymoon period where, where you're treating the pastor and his family the way you would want yourself or your children treated somewhere so that you're trying to interpret everything they say and do in the most positive way possible so that there's this honeymoon period. What can't be possible when the new pastor comes 
is that the pastor will be able to lead this church the way the church needs to be led. Because even though the pastor will have the, the office and supposedly can lead, we all know that's not the way it works. The way it works is this. Either the new pastor will gain the trust of the congregation and will be able to lead the church or the pastor will not. But here's the difference in terms of the congregation. What, there's, is there a big difference for that pastor and his family if, if the church is one that's kind of uh, mainly controlled by two or three lay people who influence other people and they want the church to be they, the way they want it to be and it might be good things, but the point is they haven't actually been called to lead, and yet they're actually preventing the church from being led, and so the, the, the new pastor can't ever lead. But that's very different from a church that when the new pastor comes, even though he can't lead you the way you need to be led because he hasn't gained trust yet, but you're a congregation who recognizes that's where we want to end up. That's where we want to end up. And so you pray for that, and you nurture that, and you, you want that to occur. And then the issue will be, will that pastor gain your trust through the preaching, through competent pastoral care, through managing of staff, through, through casting a vision? And, and, and that's on him. He's either going to be able to do that or not. And that's my prayer, that that, that, that will happen. And I'm so grateful to the Lord and thankful that there are people like Dan Moran who are so investing in this, this kind of ministry and, and believe that this can be a wonderful time uh, for you. And so I want to thank all you. You all have been so great to me. I've gotten so many uh, cards today. The Jeremy and the other staff have been so receptive to me. It's been a wonderful, wonderful time for me. And uh, I, I feel a closeness to you, and I feel like I have a stake in what happens when, when I leave. And so I will be praying for you, and I look forward to a time when you've got a full-time pastor settled in, and you send him on vacation, and you have me come back, uh, back to preach. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. 